This afternoon we read together Psalm 24. Psalm 24. This is the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. We end our reading there this afternoon, and the text for our sermon is verses 3 through 5. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Psalm 24, people of God, exalts Jesus Christ. The whole psalm is about him. The first couple of verses describe the creation of God. And we know that God created all things by his word, and that the word is Jesus Christ. He is the one who came in, who entered through the gates of heaven, as the closing verses describe. And he is ultimately the one that our text is focused on, the one who is clean in hands and in heart. But the psalm does not just describe Jesus. It extols Jesus Christ. This Son of God is all-powerful. He is king, and he is amazingly glorious. He is perfectly holy, pure, and undefiled. That makes this a very good text for us to consider. Because we have a great need to consider texts like this one on account of our horrible pride. 
We like to think that by our good deeds, we really make ourselves to be something great. We would never voice it, but we constantly begin to think, deep down, that our good deeds really have merited with God. So, when texts like this one speak of the person who will go and ascend before God, the person who is able to stand in his presence, proudly we think, surely I can. Surely I am able. I'm worthy. Psalm 24, though, humbles proud man. Only one who is perfectly holy in hands and in heart is able to ascend before the throne of God. Even a single sin disqualifies a person completely. To proud men, women, and children like us, that is an offensive reality. We don't like this truth. And yet, it remains. In Psalm 24, we are humbled to see that we cannot please God of ourselves. Only the King of all glory can do that. It's only after we've seen that, after we've acknowledged that, and after we have found refuge in Jesus Christ, that we can truly begin to display the holiness, the righteousness, which our text refers to. Who ascends Jehovah's hill? The question, the answer, and the reward. Our text begins with a question. In essence, it asks, who can go to God? But before we focus on that, we need to take a bit of time to look at the God to whom that question refers the one whom it concerns. Now, one might argue that this isn't even worth spending any time on, because if someone were to ask, upon reading these verses, who is this talking about? Who is this Lord, when this says the holy place of the Lord? If someone were to ask that, the obvious answer would be God. And from a certain perspective, we could just say that and move on. There's nothing more to be said, because none comes close to comparing with our God. And yet, both our text specifically and the psalm as a whole are very interested in who God is, and especially interested in who God is in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's necessary that we take a little bit of time here. It becomes highly significant in order to understand the question correctly. This God of the scriptures would have us to know who he is as the God before whom we stand. And so let's do that. Let's take a moment to consider who he is. And we do that, just like we did in this morning's sermon, by focusing on names, titles, designations for God that come out here. We should not overlook or neglect the names of God and of Christ when we study the scriptures. And we won't do that today, by God's grace. From the text itself, we find two significant designations for God. And then after that, we will look at three others that come out in the psalm more broadly. From the text itself, in the first place, we have the name Jehovah. Verse 3 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And verse 5 says, 
he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. As you probably know, when you see Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, that is the name Jehovah. And that name is related in the original language to the verb that means to be or to exist. And so, this is the name that means I am. It means that God is the unchanging and eternal God. He is totally independent. He has no need of any other being in order to be complete or fulfilled. But at the same time, this is also the covenant name. Even though God is totally independent and has no need of anybody, yet he is pleased to relate to us. He is a God of three persons. He is able to say, I. He has personal qualities. He can relate to others. And he does that with us in and through his covenant of grace. The name Jehovah, strikingly, brings us to Jesus because, as we saw in this morning's sermon, Jesus means Jehovah salvation. In Jesus, God shows his faithfulness in what he did to accomplish our redemption. What a great and gracious God is our Jehovah. Secondly, this text gives us the title, God of Salvation. Verse 5 says that. Second half of verse 5, righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's who God is. It tells us that he is the God who saves, the God who delivers specifically from sin. As God, he is creator, he is sustainer, and he is sovereign. He is the God of power. And it's especially in his salvation of us that we see his great and amazing power. The reality for us is that we deserve hellfire on account of all of our sins and our sinfulness. And it would take a great act of mighty power to deliver us from that. And God performed such power, especially in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, who powerfully crushed the head of Satan by his death on the cross. What a great and a powerful God is the God of our salvation. From the psalm more broadly, we find three more significant designations for God. In the first place, we find that he is both creator and sustainer. Now, we noted that a moment ago in passing, but the first couple of verses make it more explicit. Verses 1 and 2 say this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Although the titles creator and sustainer don't actually appear in those verses, that's clearly what's being emphasized there. The text shows that he is the creator. He, literally, he himself is the one who founded the whole world upon the seas and who established it upon the floods, the rivers. And that means that nothing exists outside of his power, his control, his creative word. And again, that, of course, brings us 
to Jesus because Jesus is the Word made flesh. God created all things by His Word. The Son was involved in creation. But the text also shows that He is the sustainer. And that comes out because of the particular word that's translated by established in verse 2. The specific form of the word that's used there points to something that is ongoing. This is an ongoing activity on God's part. He continues to establish. And that directs us to the idea of his providential care, his continued upholding and preservation of all that he has made. And again, that preservation is especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Colossians 1 verse 17 says, referring to Jesus, By him all things consist, or all things hold together. Because he is the one who has made all things and who preserves all things, God also owns all things, as verse 1 indicates. What a great and powerful God is our creator and sustainer. Secondly, the psalm tells us that God is the mighty one. Verse 8 refers to him as strong, mighty, and mighty in battle. He's powerful. He cannot be defeated. He is the great warrior king. And at the last day, even Antichrist will bow the knee before him. Even the anti-Christian kingdom will crumble before the face of the God who is mighty in battle. And then verse 10 adds that God is the Lord of hosts. And that means he is Jehovah of the armies. As Jehovah of armies, he commands his angel legions who go out and fight on the behalf of his spiritual kingdom. And we see this mighty one character, especially, once again, in Jesus Christ, because he mightily conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell. And then finally, the psalm tells us that God is the king of glory. Verses 8 and 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He's the glorious king. He rules over all that is. There is no part of the creation that is not subject to him as king. And he rules a spiritual kingdom of perfect glory. One where there are no rivals to the throne where he alone is honored, and all the honor is rightfully his. And once more, we see this especially in Christ, because he is the one who came in, as the psalm puts it, on that first ascension day. Those verses refer to the ascension. He's the one who came in, the one before whom the gates lifted their heads and opened unto him. He holds the office of king 
because God anointed him to do so by his Spirit. He, therefore, is the one especially who rules God's kingdom. He rules over the whole of the universe in power, and he rules in the hearts of his elect in grace, and he rules in amazing glory. What a great and glorious God we have. Concerning that God, our our text asks a question. Technically, it asks two questions, but the two questions of verse 3 really represent one thought. They're in parallel with one another. The second adds something to the first. The first question just asks, who will go to God? But the second adds, who will stand there? And the idea is, who will remain in the presence of this God? But in essence, those two questions really represent one thought, and that's this. Who can go? Who can go and stand before this God? Who can ascend to him? Both the hill and the holy place refer to God's dwelling. His hill, or his mountain, point us to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was set on two small mountains, or two very large hills. And so it was, in the Old Testament, the place that God chose to dwell in a special way. It was Zion. It was set on these hills, and it was so well known in that regard that as the people would come to Jerusalem for various festivals in the Old Testament, for official worship, they would sing certain psalms as preparation for worship. And those psalms came to be known as the Songs of Degrees, or Psalms of Ascents, because they were the ones that they sang as they ascended the hills to Jerusalem. Although it's true that God is omnipresent and all-powerful, and he doesn't need a place to live in the same way that we do, yet he still chose to dwell in the holy city of Jerusalem in a special way in the Old Testament period, as the city which in a special way pictured heaven. Similarly, his holy place directs us to think about the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple and the tabernacle. Ultimately, those two were pictures of the heavenly throne room. The ark was even located there as a symbol of the presence of God. And so again, in a special way, this was a picture of God's dwelling with his people. And now, concerning that place, David asks the question, who can go? Who can ascend there? Who can go up? This glorious king, the powerful and gracious God, Jehovah, he dwells in a mount. Who will ascend it? Who will ascend that mountain and meet with him face to face? Who will enter God's dwelling place? And then who will stand there and who will remain before him? Who will go to the holy place of this great and glorious Jehovah, the Lord 
of hosts, the King of all glory, the Mighty One, the One who is mighty in battle, so pure, so holy, so amazing, who will go and stand before him? In the Old Testament, only priests could enter the holy place, and they could only, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and he could only even do that once per year. So holy is our God. Who will go? Who dares? Who is able? Who will go to him? Will you and will I? Who will stand before this great God? Can we ascend his mount? Can we remain in the presence of so holy a God? Do we even want to? By his grace, the answer is yes. But can we? Are you beginning to feel the pressing weight of that question? What's the answer? Our text gives us the answer, especially in verse 4. And it does so both positively and negatively. Verse 4 says at the beginning, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. That's the person, positively speaking, that's the person who goes into the holy place of the Lord. By referring both to the hands and the heart, David is referring both to outward conduct, the things that we do with our hands, our general behavior in this life, and then also to the inward, to the disposition of the heart, to the thoughts, the will, the desires, the motives. Both of those are in play here in verse 4. The word for clean has to do with purity, and the word for pure has to do with separating the impurities from something even to polishing that thing. This is a heart that is spotless, undefiled entirely in God's sight, free of all imperfections. And now negatively, that's the second half of verse 4, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Here, verse 4 looks at the person who will ascend God's hill from the perspective of what they don't do, from the perspective of what they will not do. One who will stand in God's holy place does not give their soul over to vanity or wickedness, literally to the wickedness, pointing to sin itself as a concept, to everything that can be called wicked. Such a person does not lift up their soul unto that or exalt in it, or as one commentator said, set their heart upon it. And one who will stand in God's holy place further does not swear oaths with no intention of keeping them or swear oaths and then fail to keep them. All of that brings us to a doctrinal concept, doctrinal truth, and that is the idea of ethical righteousness. Ethical righteousness, that might not be the most familiar term to us, but ethical righteousness is perfect 
conformity to God's standard, both positively and negatively. Perfect conformity to God's standard, positively and negatively. That's ethical righteousness. Righteousness has to do with being right when being compared with the standard. And here, the standard is God's law. It shows us what is demanded of us. To illustrate this, if you take a pen or a pencil and you draw a vertical line on a piece of paper, and then you take a ruler and, or a straight edge of some sort and hold it up next to your line to judge the straightness of the line that you have drawn, that ruler has become your standard to the degree that your line does not perfectly match up with the edge of that straight edge, to that degree your line has deviated from the standard and is crooked. As the God who is himself perfectly holy, God has the right to establish his own law or standard as to what is right. And so even the slightest deviation from his perfect standard totally ruins our standing before him. We have no right to stand before this God if we are wrong on one point. Ethical righteousness, then, deals with both the positive and the negative that we saw in verse 4. Being perfectly righteous means doing various things, which is the positive side of it. But it also means not doing various things. Not doing these things that are wrong. Positively doing these things that are right. Actively living for God in every area of life, at all times, in heart and in will. And so, the person described by verse 4 is someone who has not lifted up their soul to wickedness and who has not sworn deceitfully, and who has lived clean in their hands, in all of their outward actions, and who has lived pure in their heart, in all of their inward thoughts and desires and motives and their will. And this person has done that at all times. There's a similar idea that can be found just a couple of pages earlier in Scripture. If you have your Bible out still, turn back a couple of pages to Psalm 15. And in fact, if you don't have your Bible out, you should take it out. Let's read Psalm 15 together a moment. Just five verses that express much the same idea as what is found in our text. Psalm 15 says this, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Psalm 15 expresses much the same idea then as our text. The person who will stand in Jehovah's holy place, because that's how the psalm begins, who will do it is the person who has not done certain things and who has done various other things. Perfect conformity to the standard of God, positively and negatively. 
only one who perfectly thinks, lives, acts this way can ascend to the hill of the Lord. There can be no compromise. And that's true because God is so pure and holy, so perfectly righteous and glorious. Habakkuk 1.13 says that he is too pure in his eyes to behold iniquity. But it's also true because of other elements of who God is. We've already seen from Psalm 24 that God is glorious. He is powerful. He is gracious. The God who is so great demands perfect righteousness from one who would ascend before him. And so, we ask the question once more, who shall go? Who can go to this God? Who can stand and remain in his presence? Who is able? Who will you and will I Do you feel the weight, the pressing weight of the question? And do you feel the weight of the answer? What are the implications of that? The first implication is, not me and not you. In light of everything that we've been considering so far, Every single one of us here ought to inwardly be falling on our faces before God, beating our breast as the publican of Jesus' parable, and saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Not I. I cannot go to thee. I can't. I have no ethical righteousness. I have no holiness. I have no purity. I have nothing. Who shall ascend? Who shall stand before him? We could never, ever do so. He's too pure of eyes to behold our iniquity before himself. Our sins of every day and our sinfulness totally exclude us from his presence. We have no ethical righteousness, and we do not align with God's perfect standard. Sometimes, in pride, we think that we could. Don't allow yourself to think that way. And if those thoughts begin to enter into your mind, as they always do for all of us, mortify them immediately. Do everything you can to put that thought from your mind. Literally, verse 4 says that the one who will ascend to Jehovah is the one who has never lifted up their soul to vanity, and has never sworn deceitfully. Not once. Every single one of us has done both of those things repeatedly. From a certain perspective, every one of our sins is a lifting up of our soul to wickedness, setting our heart upon vanity. Every sin is that. And from a certain perspective, every single sin breaks the vow that we made at confession of faith in the second question of confession of faith to lead a new and godly life. And even if you have not yet made confession of faith, children, young people, 
just by virtue of being a Christian, you have, in a certain sense, made a vow to serve none other but God alone. And every single sin violates that implicit vow because it makes self God in God's place or it makes something else God in God's place. So we are not serving him with our whole heart. And so, all we can say is the words of the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? That's the first implication of the answer. Not you and not me. The second implication, then, only Jesus Christ. He's the only one, the only one who meets the stipulations of the answer in Psalm 24, verse 4. The only one who aligns with this glorious description is our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole psalm is about him. Only he was pure in his hands, in all of his outward deeds. Only he was pure in his heart, in all of his thoughts, his will, his motives, his desires. Only he had a heart that was free of all imperfections. Only he never lifted up his soul to vanity and never swore deceitfully, not once. That is to say, only Jesus Christ had genuine ethical righteousness. He alone was perfectly aligned to the standard that is God's law. If Jehovah should mark iniquities, only Christ shall stand. And then, too, he submitted perfectly and fulfilled God's will, even when it was most difficult, because part of God's decree for him, too, was that he go to the cross, and that he take hellfire for us. And there too, he perfectly submitted without a single sinful contrary thought to the will of his Father. Psalm 24 shows us that Christ can be the only one who can answer this question in the affirmative. Because verses 7 through 10 refer clearly to his ascension as the one who goes up into God's mount. It can only be Jesus Christ. He is the king of glory. He's glorious in his rule over all things. He's glorious in his perfect holiness, his spotless hands and his spotless heart. And he's glorious in the salvation that he has wrought. But that leads us to a third implication of the answer. And it's a gospel implication. The first implication of the answer is not me and not you. The second implication is only Jesus Christ. And yet, wonder of wonders, wonder of grace, for us who are in Jesus Christ, we can say, yes, I will go to him. I will ascend the Mount of Jehovah. 
That's because God imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, His active obedience, as we sometimes call it. He imputes that to our account, all of grace. He reckons God's righteousness as righteousness that we have performed. Not only does Christ pay for our sins, but in Christ, God views us as having perfectly fulfilled his law. And for us who are in Christ, we are viewed as perfectly aligning with God's perfect standard. Only because of Jesus, we can and we do come before our God. As we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, referring to Jesus, by whom also we have access. And that's a beautiful gospel word. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then we can also say that I do display purity in hands and in heart. It's imperfect to be sure. It always will be until we exit this life and enter into perfection and glory. All our lives long, it will be imperfect. And yet, as those who are saved by grace, we truly do begin to display holiness, righteousness, before the face of our God. That stands opposed to the heresy that's known as the federal vision. The federal vision denies that the active obedience of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. At the final judgment, say federal vision theologians, God looks both at faith and at faithfulness or obedience in order to determine our righteousness. And he does not look at the imputed ethical righteousness of Jesus Christ. The federal vision corrupts the proper understanding of Psalm 24. In the federal vision, Psalm 24 becomes all about man, about what man can do, what man does do, about striving harder to earn your own salvation, because only one who is perfectly pure can ascend God's mount, only one with perfect righteousness. That's a doctrine that can only destroy us, whether because we despair as we realize that we simply can't do it, or because we get puffed up in pride when we think that we can. The reality, however, is far more comforting. The reality is that God freely imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to all of us who by faith trust in him. And so, don't look at your own righteousness, at your own cleanness of hands, your own purity of heart. Don't look at your own resistance to oath-breaking and your own resistance to vanity. Don't look at those things to find your righteousness. Instead, look to Jesus, in whom alone is salvation found. And in that way, be confident of possessing his perfect righteousness. If you have perhaps been struggling with the reality of your indwelling sin, 
perhaps even to the point that you have begun to question your own salvation. How could I possibly be saved when I keep on doing these horrible things? Take heart today. By the eye of faith, look to Jesus and in him find salvation full and free. Believing on him, God sees you as pure, even as he is pure. And that's amazing. Don't misunderstand me, however, this afternoon. If you have the tendency to hear words such as we have been meditating on and to think along these lines, great, I can sin as I please, or those men of the federal vision are wrong. I have the, the ethical righteousness of Christ imputed to me, and that means I can do whatever I want. If you have the tendency to think in that sort of way, then be warned. That is emphatically not the point. God takes no pleasure in your sins. Take heed to the warning of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, that no person who abides in various sins impenitently, adultery, thievery, and he lists various others, no person who impenitently abides in such sins shall inherit the kingdom of God. We can't just ignore the literal wording of verse 4. A person who is abiding impenitently in sin does not align with the description of verse 4 because such a person's sins have not been dealt with properly. Such a person cannot ascend Jehovah's hill. Our response to the gracious imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is not that we sin freely. Instead, with this gospel message before our mind's eye, we respond in thankfulness for all that God has done for us. And so, we do begin to manifest the characteristics of this person described in Psalm 24, verse 4. Imperfectly, to be sure, but we do. By God's grace, increasingly we hate vanity, and we more and more live clean in our hands and pure in our hearts. And in the end, there is great reward. The reward is twofold, and with regard to both sides of the reward, it goes first to Jesus Christ and then secondarily to us. The first part of the reward is Jehovah's blessing. God gave great blessing to Jesus Christ on account of his lifelong perfect obedience, and especially his obedience on the cross. That's the teaching of Philippians 2, 8 through 11. In this morning's sermon, we quoted Philippians 2, 6 and 7 about how he emptied himself of some of his glory. He went to the cross, gave himself. And now, verses 8 through 11 go on to say, because he did it, God has highly exalted him. He has been given a name that is above every name. Because Christ was obedient, even unto death, God did exalt him. He brought him out of the state of humiliation and into the state of exaltation. He brought him 
we might say, into his own holy mountain, into his presence, in his holy place. And our text teaches the same thing. Verse 5 says, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. God pronounces blessing, looking on his Son with favor. And that's true constantly, because once again, the particular form of the word that's translated receive indicates something that's ongoing. He continues, even today, to receive the blessing from the Lord. And then, for us as well, because, not because of anything in us, but because God imputes the ethical righteousness of Christ unto us, we share in the blessing of Jehovah. He pronounces blessing on us as well, and already now looks on us with favor. And then, at the last, we will follow him to where he went. The gates lifted their heads and opened the way to Jesus Christ at his ascension as he entered into heavenly glory. We too, one day, will be blessed to receive that glorious reality as we will go to be with him there. And that's the comfort on which the Holsteggs meditate in these days of grief, that their loved one has gone to be with him, has entered those gates. And just as for Jesus Christ, so too for us. This is true constantly. We will never lose the eternal life that we are given. Finally, the second part of the blessing is righteousness from the God of salvation. The second part of the reward, rather. Righteousness from the God of salvation. That's the second part of verse 5. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Christ already has perfect ethical righteousness, and so this can't be saying that God will bestow righteousness upon him. Instead, the point is that God will declare him to be righteous. And then, too, it refers to God as the God of his salvation. Jesus doesn't need salvation in the sense that we need it. But God is still the God of his salvation in this way, that he is the God who delivered him from the grave by raising him up. And then, for us, too. We receive the ethical righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we also receive the declaration of righteousness. We do need salvation, and the God of our salvation grants the perfect righteousness that we need. What a gloriously gracious salvation is ours in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that because of Christ, and only through faith in Christ, we can and we do ascend Jehovah's hill. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thee thanks once again for so amazing and glorious a gospel message. Lord, none is worthy to ascend thy hill. 
none is worthy even to call upon thee in prayer. So we give thee thanks for Jesus Christ, who gave himself so that we might be saved, who gave himself and whose righteousness, even in that giving of himself, is imputed to us so that we do now ascend thy holy hill. May we be humbled by this truth and may we be encouraged and go forth knowing that we have so great salvation in him and thus live as those who have been called unto holiness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.